Hello and welcome to episode 14 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. To pick up where we left off, Longstreet and much of his corps were not present for the Battle of Chancellorsville. Instead, he was under orders from Confederate Commander Robert E. Lee to secure much-needed supplies from Southeast Virginia and North Carolina. While he was gone with much of his corps, Lee's army had given battle to Joe, fighting Joe Hooker's Army of the Potomac. During the battle, Lee had sent Stonewall Jackson's corps around the Union right flank for a devastating attack that resulted in Hooker's losing his nerve and retreating back across the Rappahannock River. Even after the flank attack, Hooker's army was in a great position to counterattack and possibly destroy Lee's forces, who were scattered and disorganized after the flank attack. However, Hooker seems to have sustained a concussion during the fight and would not listen to his corps commanders who saw an opening and were eager to fight on. But unfortunately for the Federals, this was not to be. Now, tragically for the Confederates, Stonewall Jackson received a mortal wound from friendly fire the night of his greatest triumph at Chancellorsville. As a result, Robert E. Lee was compelled to reorganize his army into three new corps commanded by Generals Longstreet, Richard Ewell, and A.P. Hill. Now, this takes us to the Battle of Gettysburg, which we covered in some detail during the first part of this series. The Gettysburg campaign, as was the case with the Maryland campaign, was a rebel invasion of the North, a strategic offensive, except at Gettysburg, Lee decided to pursue the tactical offensive when the armies came together, and the result was a stunning defeat of Lee's army by the Army of the Potomac under the newly minted commander, General George Meade. Now, in that vein, I'd like to discuss for a moment the issue of Gettysburg and supplies for the southern armies. It's been well documented that one of Lee's primary objectives for the invasion of Pennsylvania was to gather food, and his army found plenty. Regarding those needed supplies, if states' rights was one of the primary reasons for secession, it also appears to have been a primary reason for the failure of the rebellion as well. Politicians in the Confederate states were eager to raise regiments and in most cases compel and conscript young men and boys to fight in this war. However, the fervency to raise regiments was apparently much greater than the fervency of the same politicians to send much-needed supplies and money. The aristocracy of the South succeeded brilliantly in fomenting rebellion in the poor population, but failed utterly to supply the needs of those poor boys they sent to war. Hence, in most cases, the Confederate soldier was asked to fend for himself and scour the countryside with food for food with one hand while fighting a war with the other. This reminds uh, one of the book of Nehemiah. Furthermore, as Grant and Sherman made their way through the countryside of Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, they found plentiful foodstuffs to feed their armies on the march because these same states could not be compelled to send food and supplies on the basis of the old states' rights argument. After the war, Longstreet's political enemies who argued the so-called lost cause narrative seemed to have forgotten that their own states could not or would not support their needs of the soldiers. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back to the story.
Okay, let's talk about the Battle of Chickamauga. Longstreet had been lobbying for a move to the Western Theater because he believed the wide-open spaces there offered more opportunity for movement and a chance to claw back some of the lost territory in Tennessee and Kentucky. Also, he believed a promotion to Army commander would be more likely in the Western Theater given uh, General Braxton Bragg's unpopularity and lack of results. A few months after Gettysburg, with little movement from Meade, Confederate President Davis and Eastern Commander Robert E. Lee finally agreed to dispatch Longstreet with two infantry divisions to the Western Theater to support General Bragg and the Confederate Army of Tennessee. The situation in Tennessee was reaching a crisis state. A new Union force under Ambrose Burnside had seized Knoxville on the 2nd of September, severing the direct rail line to Virginia, and General William S. Rosecrans' army of the Cumberland was closing in on Chattanooga. If Longstreet's command was to arrive in time to help, they would need to leave soon. Uh, After the fall of Knoxville, they would be forced to take a circuitous route by way of the Carolinas to get to northern Georgia, roughly 775 miles. The entire trip would take about three weeks to complete, and after this long meandering train ride, Longstreet arrived at the Catoosa Station just outside Ringgold Gap in Georgia on September the 17th. The clamor of battle could be heard from the northwest, about 15 miles distant. No guides or horses awaited their arrival, and Longstreet spent another two hours on the train platform until the horses for his command came on the second train. Longstreet was forced to go in search of the Army commander, General Bragg, and finally located him, located him about 11 p.m. at uh, Chickamauga Creek in an ambulance sleeping. Bragg informed Longstreet he had just reorganized his army and that Longstreet would now command the left wing for a renewal of the battle early the next morning. It turns out that almost no one else in the Army of Tennessee knew of this reorganization plan, which Bragg was attempting to execute in the middle of a battle. Now, speaking of General Braxton Bragg, he was arguably the Civil War's most hated uh, commander. Long afflicted by painful rheumatism, chronic stomach ailments, and severe migraines that helped fuel his unpleasant disposition, Bragg was short-tempered, aggressively argumentative, publicly critical of superiors, quick to berate subordinates, and exercised a strict disciplinary command style that alienated the Civil War's most mostly volunteer uh, soldiers. He generally was obnoxious to everyone. In fact, uh, even uh, President Jefferson Davis, who gave him command of the principal field army in the uh, war's Western theater, didn't much like Bragg, and perhaps more importantly, neither did Bragg's senior subordinates. The commander of the Army of Tennessee was faced off against the Union Army of the Cumberland, commanded by Union General uh, William S. Rosecrans, uh, Longstreet's former West Point roommate. This is the same Rosecrans who had fought off Lee's Confederates and liberated what was now becoming West Virginia. The two armies had been stalking each other across the rugged terrain south of Chattanooga. They had just completed a confused day of fighting in which all plans had been miscarried due to the difficult thicket, gra- uh, thicket-covered ground plus poor execution of Bragg's complicated plans. Having taken over 
all of Bragg's forces on the left flank. Longstreet fashioned a scheme on the morning of September 18th that illustrated his tactical thought and and demonstrated his skill as a battlefield commander. He believed that if an attack was to be delivered, it required depth to preserve its momentum. Therefore, he selected a column assault with successive brigades four to five deep. He thought that no defenders without fortifications could withstand the pounding from successive waves of attackers. As we discussed in part one of this series, in 40 minutes, the Southerners hammered into pieces two Union divisions, whose members streamed westward and northward away from the carnage. Longstreet had utterly ruined the Army of the Cumberland's entire right flank, chasing what was left of the force, including General Rosecrans himself, all the way to Chattanooga. The only holdout was General George George Thomas, holding on for dear life on Snodgrass Hill. There was no better general in Rosecrans' army than this redoubtable warrior, and if the day could be salvaged, it fell to Thomas. On Horseshoe Ridge and on the north of Snodgrass Hill and in, in Kelly Field, Thomas made his stand against both wings of Bragg's army. Future President James Garfield gave Thomas the nickname Rock of Chickamauga for saving the army from destruction. Now, after the battle, in in his report, Longstreet gave props to his men. Quote, The sanguinary severity of the fight and the heroism of the troops was worthy of the highest praise and admiration. Unquote. To him, the Confederate victory belonged to the soldiers in the ranks and to the officers who led them into this terrible fury. Today, army schools teach this attack in depth and for envelopment, which Longstreet appears to have pioneered on the fly at Chickamauga. Modern armies today continue to use this tactic, and the German Wehrmacht used it with great success in World War II. Immediately after Longstreet's greatest victory at Chickamauga came a strange and confused period in, uh, in Chattanooga and Knoxville. The Union Army had retreated back to the defenses of Chattanooga, and Grant's army settled in for a siege against the city. This siege was only partially effective for a time until Union General Ulysses S. Grant, Longstreet's best friend, arrived from Mississippi to break the siege and open a supply line in the city called the Cracker Line. Longstreet's forces were tasked with defending the area around Lookout Mountain and west of the mountains, but they did not do a great job at this. This is because the Confederate Army now had big problems of its own, and those problems were mainly a lack of food and lots of infighting. Now, the primary problem for the rebels was, again, a lack of food and supplies. The Confederates simply were failing to supply their Western armies, and this was most acutely felt by the Army of Tennessee here around Chattanooga. Along with a lack of supplies, however, was the fact that most every senior officer in the Army hated Braxton Bragg. In fact, they were so unhappy with their commander, they prepared a petition to have him removed from command, which, they, which was signed by a dozen top generals, including si- Simon Bolivar Buckner, D.H. Hill, Patrick Claiborne, and Longstreet. This position was forwarded to Confederate President Jefferson Davis in Richmond, who then visited the Army during their siege of Chattanooga to investigate it. 
At the end of the drama, Davis kept Bragg in position as commander of the army, and instead several of Bragg's subordinates were reassigned or removed altogether. Such was Davis's leadership and his relations with Bragg. Now Longstreet, who was actually there on loan from Lee's army, was seen by Bragg as a threat to his authority, and Bragg was keen to have him removed as well. This perceived threat was actually quite real because Longstreet did intend, indeed harbor aspirations to take over command of the Army of Tennessee. In fact, that was his main motivation for being there. So to deal with this threat, Bragg sent Longstreet away, back northeast to Knoxville to deal with Union General Ambrose Burnside and to kick him out of what was becoming a Union stronghold there in Knoxville. So Longstreet and his men made plans to leave. However, as his divisions began to make their plans to leave Knoxville, Longstreet realized Bragg had made no provisions to supply his forces for their trip. Longstreet complained loudly of this predicament, but in the end his men were compelled to make their way northeast and to fend for themselves, as all Western armies had done henceforth. As a result... The road to Knoxville became a slog over difficult terrain with little food and forage, and as they approached Knoxville, Longstreet's units were hardly in condition to fight against uh, Burnside's well-provisioned army. Well, when they arrived in Knoxville, Longstreet and his men made several attempts to break Burnside's stronghold position there, but nothing seemed to work. Now the tables were turned from the experience at Fredericksburg. Burnside was the defender and Longstreet was the attacker. Burnside's officers and engineers had done an excellent job at preparing fortifications, and Longstreet was simply unable to make progress against them. Also, to make matters worse, it was now becoming known to Longstreet and his men that Bragg's Army of Tennessee back in Chattanooga to their rear had just been beaten and completely routed by Grant and Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. Furthermore, Union General uh, Sherman's army was now on their way to Knoxville, to attack Longstreet from the rear. Having made no progress against Burnside's fortifications and with his units in danger of being surrounded on two sides by Union forces, Longstreet finally decided that discretion was the better part of valor. On December 19th of 1863, he broke off the attack and his divisions headed for winter camp on the road back to Virginia. It was indeed a tough winter for the Confederates in far northeast Tennessee that year. They found it, quote, bleak, desolate, and inhospitable country, unquote, mainly because the inhabitants remained loyal to the Union, even though the state of Tennessee had seceded. Lincoln had great affection for the people of this region because they continued their loyalty even through the deprivations put upon them by their Confederate masters for the first two years of the war. Burnside's Union Army had finally liberated them, and they, were, they intended to stay liberated, even with Longstreet's forces present in the area for the winter. Now, at this time, back in Richmond, Longstreet faced severe criticism in the papers for his lack of success in Knoxville. Mary Chestnut even wrote in her diary, quote, Detached from General Lee, what a horrible failure. What a slow, old humbug is Longstreet, unquote. Then... Quote, Peter is slow, unquote. 
Confederates were indeed beginning to lose heart after Vicksburg, Gettysburg, and now Chattanooga. James Longstreet's memory of the grand victories at Second Manassas, Fredericksburg, and Chickamauga were forgotten, and his self-confidence was leeching away. The Western Theater, it turns out, offered little joy for him, and he was now ready to resume his place as a subordinate commander to Robert E. Lee back with the Army of Northern Virginia. When winter camp was over in the spring of 1864, the Union Army had a new sheriff in town. That man was Ulysses S. Grant. Grant was determined to take on the Confederates on all fronts at once and deny them use of their interior lines. That's because in previous years, the rebels had been allowed to move troops around between theaters to take on biggest threats wherever they might be. Grant was intent on simultaneous attacks on all fronts to eliminate this possibility and to try and end the war as soon as possible. It was 1864, and he was keenly aware that rapid progress was crucial in order for Abraham Lincoln to be reelected to the U.S. presidency and to see the war through to completion. With this as his high, highest goal, he sent the Army of the Potomac headlong into a collision against Robert E. Lee's Army of, in Virginia, while simultaneously he sent Union General William T. Sherman's army to Georgia to take on Joseph E. Johnston's army. Uh, Bragg had been relieved of command in the West after the Chattanooga debacle, and Joseph E. Johnston was now in command, at least for now until his army was pushed back to Atlanta. Now, the Overland Campaign, arguably the largest and most devastating campaign of the war, was kicked off on May the 5th, 1864, in the wilderness, just west of Chancellorsville. This is the same place where Robert E. Lee's rebels had humiliated fighting Joe Hooker's Federals one year earlier. However, unlike Hooker and Burnside and McClellan, Grant was a fighter and a bulldog. He was not going to quit. At this point, Grant now attacked with his entire force simultaneously on two fronts against two of Lee's three corps. The rebels rebels were situated with Ewell's corps on the left and A.P. Hill's corps on the right, and Grant was attacking from the east with everything he had. Longstreet's corps was miles away and would have to do an overnight march in order to arrive at the battle. The wilderness terrain was all but impossible to maneuver in because of the undergrowth of new trees and scrub, and it became a slugfest of brutal close-in fighting. Bitter but inconclusive fighting raged until dark when Grant's forces finally stopped to prepare for the decisive blow early the next day on the 6th. The Confederates were exhausted and disorganized by the day's fighting and were praying for Longstreet's arrival the next day. On the 6th, the Union attack began at 5 a.m., and General Hancock's forces began to crush A.P. Hill's forces on the Confederate right. A.P. Hill's corps was defeated, and the men were in full flight to the rear. The Confederate army was in peril of annihilation, and Robert E. Lee himself was standing in the road at the front trying to stem the tide of fleeing rebels. According to Porter Alexander, Lee was in, quote, the most desperate strait he had ever known, unquote. Just at that moment, and after a march of 43 miles in just over a day, 
Longstreet's forces attacked Hancock's corps head-on and stemmed the tide. Then for two hours, Longstreet adjusted his lines again and again, improvising using unconventional formations of advanced skirmishers that allowed his outnumbered forces to deliver constant volleys that kept Hancock's forces at bay. Lee's army had been saved, and the Union assault wrecked by one of the war's most dramatic counterattacks. But but Longstreet uh, wasn't done yet. Bruce Catton writes, By the middle of the morning, Longstreet realized that Bernie's left flank, Bernie was one of Hancock's division commanders, was entirely in the air, unsupported, and he took a good part of his command off through the woods, formed a line of battle along an unfinished railroad embankment a mile south of the plank road, and then drove his men forward in a crunching drive that completely shattered the Union line. Hancock's front had never regained its cohesion, and when Longstreet's men hit the flank, everything fell apart. After this successful flanking attack, Longstreet was riding with his staff out ahead of his corps, looking for a spot from which to launch a second flank attack that night. At some point, one of the officers realized that they were isolated, and as they turned back toward their own lines, a part, their party was mistaken for a unit of Federals. A volley of friendly fire struck Longstreet, who reeled in the saddle as he was struck in the throat with a bullet that passed through his shoulder and severed some nerves. He was placed in an ambulance and rolled away from perhaps the triumph of his career, according to Jeffrey Wirt. Not far away, a year earlier, Stonewall Jackson had was also fallen from the fire of his troops at a similar moment. Then, after months of recuperation, Longstreet would eventually rejoin his corps in the trenches around Richmond, which we'll cover in the next episode. So tune in for episode 15, when we will discuss Longstreet's role in the retreat and surrender at Appomattox, and then his very eventful life after. 